0: If you're able to say something and he's able to show that he's understood it, you have communicated in a way that is using the abstract tool of language to enter that, that world of intelligence. Well, to join minds, essentially, that's really what it's about.
1: Hey guys, I'm Eric Olson, and welcome to another episode of the Synapse Series on science-centric. Synapse is our signature discussion series where we have thought-provoking discussions with scientists, journalists, authors, and other thought leaders. But before we dive in, a couple of quick reminders. One, you can help keep this series going by rating this episode or writing us a review on whichever platform you're listening on. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much all the major platforms. And number two, you can help support us directly through Patreon. We have a couple of nice benefits over there, including early access to new episodes, ad-free episodes, and a monthly patrons-only Q&A with me where you can suggest new show topics or guests. Check out the show notes or visit sciencecentric.com support for more info. Simon Prentice, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on and for, for getting in touch. Um, it's awesome to have you here and I think we're very lucky to to have you here
0: well thank you for inviting me
1: <laughs> awesome um so i I typically have you know I, I typically write this intro for guests but I had a great idea from from a viewer that's like you know you should just let the guests introduce themselves <laughs> so oh, i think wow. we'll, i think <laughs> we'll do that here um so maybe you could just tell the listeners and viewers a little bit about yourself, your background and um, how you, how you became a book author.
0: All right. Well, that's, that could be potentially a long story, but um, I guess uh, the way into that would be to say that I've always been, since my late teens, I've always been interested in, in other cultures and just sort of different ways of thinking about the world and mainly due to a dissatisfaction with my own, I think. And, uh, so I sort of traveled quite a bit in my youth, um, mainly in the middle East and, and, and Europe. But then when I went to university, I wasn't really doing anything to do with languages, particularly. I, I studied literature and language, and then I became involved in, in a martial art called Aikido, which you may or may not know. Yes. Um, oh yeah. Japanese. Yeah. Okay. More of an art than a martial, as I as I like to say. <laughs> if you still I me, mean. anyway, I decided I had to go to Japan, so I managed to wangle a way to get to Japan, and I spent. I originally thought I was going to be there for about a year, and then I realised that wouldn't even scratch the surface of it, and I began to learn the language to my surprise because I hadn't been a linguist at, at uh, school or university. And one thing led to another and I ended up staying there eight years and qualifying as a a translator and an interpreter. And then um, I came back to Europe and based in London, started working as an interpreter and translator through many European countries and, and the Middle East and also in America and other places. I've traveled quite widely and seen a lot of cultures firsthand and the overriding, thing that really bothered me, I guess, was how self-centered everybody is in their own culture. They all become convinced that theirs is the best of course. and that everybody else is somehow substandard. And particularly in the English-speaking world, we're so kind of, it's not even dismissive, it's just plain, flat, ignorant of other cultures. Right. And we sort of kind of treat somebody who doesn't speak English properly as somehow mentally defective. And, you know, this is, this is different to other cultures where if you, because of the dominance of English, if you make the effort to speak their language, they're generally very happy that you do that. It's a very sort of one-sided position that the English-speaking world takes. But nonetheless, and notwithstanding, each culture does have this secret belief that it is somehow really special and has (laughs) these really special things that no other culture has. So I kind of Started the idea was to write a book that would look at those cultural issues, yeah, and why it is that we end up in those sort of kind of rather um blinkered positions. And then, because I'm more obviously a linguist, I became more interested in, in the nature of, of language and words. And I, I discovered that really nobody knows you know, that language is a bit of a mystery. We all know that language is the yeah. one thing that distinguishes us, but we don't really know why. And uh, so I started researching that, and then I ran into a piece of research that kind of opened a door for me when I realized that that the number of sounds that we use when we speak, you know, what normally people think of as vowels and consonants or the, the prose call phonemes, you know, that these these are um, different numbers for different languages. And not only that, they can get quite small, you know, the further away you get from Africa down into the, the jungles of South America. People are only using eleven phonemes, right? Now yeah. in, in English, it's something like forty-four, and in other languages, it's even higher than that. And a phoneme, so, a, phoneme a phoneme is phoneme.
1: basically like the most basic sound that we make, right? It's like a yes. It would be a yes. You know, a pa sound or a duh sound or, and yeah. you know, anything yeah. that was that's yeah. right. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's kind of what we think of as vowels and consonants. It's like a generic generic word for all the sounds that we use. And yeah. People who don't really think about language very much don't really know that. But actually, we are using a very limited number of sounds. It's just everything we're saying can be diced down into those yeah. small number yeah. of sounds. It's like numbers, really. You know, the numbers we have just ten digits, and we can use those ten digits to make any number we like. And <laughs> words are the same. Well, so, let, have-
1: so let me jump in and, and, and kind of that kind of highlight this point that, that you're making, which is that. And by the way, I uh, should mention the book is called Speech, How Language Made Us Human, um, if, if, yeah. if that hasn't been covered, um, which is your book that came out, I think, about a year ago. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. yeah.
0: And I just issued an updated. But, yeah. So 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 that, you know, the thing
1: about language and, and maybe the pod, a podcast actually is the best uh, sort of vehicle for talking about language, but um, mm. I had that thought as we were, as I was, um, kind of getting ready to speak with you. Um, but, but we're just, we're born into it. We, we learn language from such a young age and it's so much a part of what we do that we just, it's almost like a fish. I was thinking of like a fish swimming in water. It's like, you don't, yeah, totally. we didn't, we never take yeah. that time to really think about, well, what are, what are we actually doing? Because we were so focused on the meaning of what we say, but you know, and it's that it's instantly translated, but we don't think about like those little individual noises that that we're making that somehow translate into. So I think that's what you're you're getting at there. Yeah.
0: Well, the really interesting thing about that to me is that even the professionals don't really think about that because, you know, humans have been thinking about, well, some humans have been thinking about language as far back as we have records, you know, in ancient Greece, obviously, but. You know, in India, it goes back, grammar, people who studied grammar go back thousands of years. And it's all been about, well, how does this thing work? What are the rules that make mm. language work? And so moving into the modern age, you have Chomsky, who really took that to the nth degree and started applying computational techniques so that you've got these really complicated trees of, you know, recursive subclauses and all that stuff. And it, <laughs> it gets very complex, but that's, that's not the actual base of language. That's the kind of the superstructure. When you drill down in it, what, what is the really key thing that makes us different from other animals is the fact that we have lots of words, you know, I mean, words come before grammar. That Mm -hmm. seems to be the thing that people somehow miss, Mm. you know, words are taken for granted. And, you know, if you think you speak another language, I don't know, but if you've ever tried to learn one, obviously you start with individual words. And only later on do you start to put the grammar together because you don't have enough words to do it to begin with. Right. And the difference between what we do and what other animals do is that we have, because we put sounds together, we can make lots of words Mm. very easily. Mm -hmm. Whereas most animals just make one noise like woof or moo or whatever (laughs) they do. And they haven't got much choice here. So it's not surprising they don't use grammar. And... When people talk about what's the difference between animal communication and human language, they're usually talking about grammar. They say, "Well, they don't do grammar," but of course they don't do grammar. They haven't got words. It, it's, it's a much more basic thing than that. So that was really the the starting point of my book was to point that out. It's just all we're doing is just like grunting at each other, but in a structured fashion. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now, now I won't be able to continue talking. I mean, that's that's a little bit how you... you you're how too you, conscious <laughs> what you're doing. Yeah, <laughs> you start focusing on that. I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, you're on some kind of hallucinogen and you start focusing on the <laughs> sounds of, like, I can't talk because I'm listening to the sound of my own voice kind of thing, like a self-consciousness, which we can't do. Um, Which actually might, that might actually be a good, you know, uh that might be a, a, segue into talking about language and, and self and consciousness or, or being, you know, I don't know if mm. conscience, yeah. conscience, conscious and self-conscious, are those related? Yeah. I think, um, self-consciousness. Yeah. I don't know. Mm. So anyways, sorry, lost my train of thought, but, um, so, well, I- so, 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 you know, a major premise, of your book is that, that language is actually a, a construction uh, of our, it kind of constructs our consciousness. And one, one yeah. question I had for you about that is just, you know, did your involvement in Japanese culture bring out that idea for you? Because I mean, to me, that sounds a lot like, uh, and, and we actually have a bit of a connection here because i i've studied uh chinese martial arts for a long time and and been, okay. i was doing tai chi which is which is very kind of has a lot of the same um you Absolutely. know uh precepts that aikido does but but it's also yeah. heavily influenced by Taoism and zen and there's this idea that
0: yeah
1: um well let me let me let me let you answer the question but do do you okay. think your involvement in japanese culture um, you know, con- contributed to this to this idea that you're putting forward in the book that that language actually is our conscious Bring, consciousness. Yes. Consciousness. Okay. Yeah. Well,
0: there's there's two parts to that. Maybe first of all, yes, I think so. I think certainly my my practice of Zen, not that it was hugely deep, but as a sort of you know ancillary to doing Aikido, you kind of get into that, and you know meditation. Zen meditation is as much as anything, sort of trying to shut off the stream of words that's going through your head, to stop the thoughts that are coming through, and just sort of be be there. And uh, so, once you do that, then you sort of realize that that you you have a huge amount of sensory information that's there that is often just obscured and blocked out by words. Because what we're doing now, I mean, we're talking to each other and I'm actually with you wherever you are somehow in my mind I'm not in my own space here if I if I do that then I'm suddenly I'm, I'm not with you anymore I'm, I'm here but actually when I'm talking to you because of the illusion the abstract world that words create I, I'm no longer here so doing meditation I think really made me see that contrast between what I what I in the book call awareness uh-huh and Consciousness, and I make a distinction between those two, and I, and I think that's not widely sort of made. And what what I mean by that is, you can be aware of things, but you can't necessarily have a word for them. You don't mm-hmm. necessarily have words to them. It's when you have a word that you can start thinking about things, and it's difficult to really. Um, there's that famous quote that I quote in my book from um, Thomas Hobbes saying, Words are wise men's counters. They do but reckon with them, but they are the currency of fools. Mm-hmm. Meaning, mm-hmm. you kind of need a word, you need words to be able to think about things in a, in a, in a complex way. Yeah. But if you get trapped yeah. in words, it's the currency of fools because actually, what you have, all you have is, is, is your awareness. And that's what all animals share. Right. All animals have an awareness. Probably, even if one to go to the extreme, maybe even rust has awareness, you know you've got iron and water come together, and they want to be together in the form of rust. ah, maybe they're aware of that as some of them, maybe there's a feeling that pulls them like that that that's the real basic awareness, right, but they don't have any means of bringing that to consciousness, whereas we do what language has done has allowed us to be aware that we are aware because we can. Put a noise that we agree means something, and share that. And then once you've got that word, then you can use it to think. So I'm probably not explaining this very well. But I <laughs> no,
1: think- <laughs> I I think I mean I I think yeah I think it comes back. It's a it's it makes sense if you especially if you've read any Buddhism or you know Zen Buddhism or Taoism or anything like that. Yeah, it's this idea of the. They think they call it the monkey mind. Um, is is the mm-hmm. phrase in Zen? It's this, you know, kind of chattering, this yeah. voice that we're always, that's always going in our head and talking and labeling things and, um, mm-hmm. you know, maybe Freud called it the ego. It's the you know, mm-hmm. and and the id is more of our just raw awareness or you know yeah. drives that we can't really name, um, but. You know, in Buddhism or Taoism, you meditate to quiet that chattering monkey mind and just go into pure awareness. Um, so, I make a
0: distinction in the, in the book between the, the id entity and identity, which I have to, right. a friend of mine told me that, and I'm afraid I shamelessly stole it because I think it's a great idea. The idea that your identity is this artificial construction that you have in your head, which is all to do with the culture you were brought up in and the language that you learn and the religion that surrounded that and all those things that give you your cultural identity. But nested inside that is this, the id, the id entity that that wants to break out (laughs) and doesn't, doesn't like really being trapped in this sort of cultural armor. Yeah, and it's it's that's kind of a different way of saying what you're saying, really. Yeah, you know, so the purpose of meditation is, yeah.
1: I just wanted to take a moment to thank the sponsor of this episode, FlowSpark Media. So FlowSpark Media is the video-based media company that I founded in 2018. In addition to producing freely available series like the one you're listening to. We also help science and technology-focused organizations to develop, create, and manage their video projects. Our clients range from major scientific publishers to space telecom companies to STEM-focused educational programs. Head over to flowspark.com creative to find out how we can help you with your next project. Now back to the show. So, so Reconnect. this, this idea that you're, that you're putting forward is that, uh, if I understand it, that, that language, uh, is a great, is this great tool, uh, that, that humans developed, um, that can do all these great things, but then we're also sort of trapped by it. So how are, how are, how are we trapped by language? Okay. What are well, the, I, what are the traps that, We can fall into
0: well. The traps are the answers to the questions that we have. The I I, the the way the book is structured is that I look at first of all explain how we come to have be able to do this trick of language that we were just talking about putting sounds together. So then that allows you to have a conversation. So obviously that kind of the first set of conversations you start to have is how are we gonna do things here? What what, what are the ways we're going to, if you and I are going to sort of set up some kind of life together, we're gonna have to make some practical decisions about how you do things. So that means discussing it and coming up with answers and you come to those answers. And most of the time those answers will just be things you happen to discover along the way and maybe a way to make fire or, you know, best way to arrange things in your life and i talk about just things like dividing time how are we going to talk about time things like that you know i mean it's very uh, there's a lot of very practical things that soon come up once once you have language as opposed to having no language You know, right. no animals can talk about right. time because they don't have the words to it. you know they can't say you know i'll i'll zoom with you next wednesday at six o'clock that's <laughs> not going to happen because too many questions involved that they haven't answered so so you get a whole set of decisions that you and I have made our little culture and other people will come to other decisions about how they're going to do it. Maybe. I mean, let's just take the example of time, which I use in the book. Every culture comes up with different decisions about when does a day start? How long is a week? Oh, yeah. How many hours are oh. you having a day? All that kind of stuff. So it's, we get to, you know, we think our way is the right way. <laughs> So we get stuck with that. That's what tradition is all about. It's about believing that the way your culture, the answers your culture came up with must be the right ones because <laughs> here we are. We will we'll learn. So that, that's the first trap. And in a sense, it's the answer to the question, how? Once you can start asking the question, how? You've got to answer it. And the answer can become a trap. And likewise, the next question, sort of big question that comes along is why? Right. Why, why? Why are we here? What's What's going on? What you know? And and in a sense, religion is is the first answer to the question, why? Because there's a whole set of stories that get told. Yeah. And you know, right through. Go on.
1: Well, let's let's dwell in how a little bit here. Um okay. So so one one thing that I, um, I think that a lot of actually Americans take great pleasure in is is noticing all the little differences between uh british english and american english they're both english and to, yeah. to be fair the english invented english okay <laughs> so you may have a well, bit we more stole of it. It <laughs>
0: we, we, we stole <laughs> it from other people it's, 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 it's <laughs> well <being> that's,
1: <laughs> that's 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 true that's a whole other can of worms um but but it's 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 almost like being a bit it's almost like you feel like it's a bit of a parallel universe when you're when you're comparing all these things, you're like, "How could you?" I remember going to the to the grocery store, uh, and I worked with uh, I worked for Nature Publishing, which is based in the UK. So most a lot of my colleagues were were British, and you know, I, I was right. over there, and we went to the grocery store, and we we're talking about the um the the woman I was with, she was talking about the trolley. Oh, and you get the trolley for the to pick up groceries, uh, you know, uh, and and here we call it grocery cart. We don't call it a trolley. I thought, you know, it's just so, it's so funny. But like, as you're saying, there's, there's no real, is there any benefit to calling one versus the other? You know, I mean. You
0: you should try taking a deep dive into another language because that (laughs) that confusion that you're talking about is multiplied in so many different dimensions. It's like, oh my God. You know, it's, 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 it's a wonderful experience. Just on trolley, I can't help mentioning this, but that is the current term of abuse for our prime minister, trolley. He's referred to as a trolley because, you know, you go into a, a shopping mall and you take a cart uh-huh. in the American sense yeah. and you know, one of the wheels is weird and it just won't go in the direction that it want you want <laughs> it to go in. Right? So <laughs> that is the current term of abuse for our wonderful prime minister. <laughs> and it's very true trolley, but clearly hasn't got over the yeah. pond because nobody would understand yeah. it in America
1: and and we do have that word we yeah. do have trolley but we when we it refers to a like a streetcar that you would ride yeah. on like a cable That's car right. in, in san can, francisco which we call a tram yes yeah we call that a tram yeah so it's like i it's i don't know i just find that really <laughs> fun and, and entertaining to to comp, well, you know compare and then those this
0: things. then this ra- this this whole thing ratchets up then because you know, the next stage is is why, as I was saying. So you yeah. get your religion, your little religion. You know, and I I just read this wonderful thing that, uh, who was to remember what it was? um Oh yeah, a book by Matt Ridley, who's an interesting character. Anyway, he said that there's there's this fantastic, well, you're sure you know it, on the Sistine Chapel in Rome, there's this portrait by Michelangelo showing God creating man. It's like God and, and Adam are touching fingers. It's, it's, it's a very sort of dramatic image. And it's always taken oh, to yeah. mean, yeah, that this is the moment that God created man. And he suggests in the book that actually, no, it's the other way around. Because anybody who has any sense of the history of religion must know <laughs> that there are so many different options here that none of them can be right. And actually, the truth is that Adam is creating man. And if you look at that picture again and think of it that way around, that actually Adam touching God's finger is creating God. Right. It, it opens up a whole different universe. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but my point is there that, that you know, the, really, the next set of things that we get trapped by, going back to your question about how does language trap us, yeah. is that set of questions. You know, what, what's the answer to why we're here? because everybody has a different solution to that. And, well, it might just be that your version is right, but the other <laughs> logical solution is that they're all wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I mean, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I could see how that's, that's certainly a trap.
0: Um, so moving on from that, then the question becomes, how do you, how do you, where does Lang, where, what do you do about this? What do you do about the fact that you're saying, you know, cart, and I'm saying trolley, or you know, yeah. you're measuring things in miles and I'm using kilometers, or or, or or all these things? And you you say, well, your God made the universe, and I'm saying, no, my God did. How do you how do you deal with that? And and the answer, which is really to the point of science centric, is is science, the yes. scientific approach, right? Is the one where you leap over all those things and you come together at a higher level where you're actually able to apply a scientific method, which is really just logic Mm -hmm. and really just sort of kind of putting all the arguments together and seeing how they stack up. And and that's, you know, that is the great joy of languages, is sort of being able to use it as a tool to bring you closer to an understanding of what's going on basically I suppose
1: yeah I one thing I just wanted to bring up was that reading your book um and and I read a review of it and one of the things the review said was it's kind of in the tradition of uh the the book which I absolutely adore which is guns germs and steel uh, by Jared Diamond and yeah. also uh, *Sapiens*, yeah. which I actually didn't—I fi- haven't finished that, but I started reading it. But it's—it's it's like language is so fundamental to everything that we do that it really like constructs our entire culture, um, right? I mean, this is this is how we get this complexity of culture because religion is actually can be very complex, theology can be very complex. Yeah. Um, Right. Science, of course, is very complex. It involves logic and everything. Um, so, um, I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but <laughs> I, okay. uh, well, I, 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 think it's, I, I think your you, book you is, have has about a you. very, very large scope. So, in, in some ways, it's, you know, it's a, it's kind of a history of of the of humanity and and our relationship with language, yeah. and then it's. You know, all all the things that we do really have this relationship with language. I mean, that's that's really right. I mean, that's
0: that's why the yeah the subtitle. I mean, it's called speech and speech with an exclamation mark. So it's not really about just about speech. It's it's about how 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 we get to be how we are. I mean, the the subtitle is the thing. How right. language made us human. Yeah. Because any species. What I'm trying to say is that any species that was able to talk or share information, yeah, detailed information in the way that language allows us to do is going to run up against these questions. And it's the fact that we were able to do that, that turns us into what we are. I mean, every culture has a culture, you know, <laughs> and has a religion of some form or more than one religion. Right. And has an identity and all these things are a necessary consequence of language. And then, over and above that if we're lucky we get some science that allows us to kind of sort out the the truth from the the not truth you know, right the fact right, from the fantasy right, right that's that's the hope behind it and and then that has consequences in turn because the technology then grows and that allows us to connect up in ways that, that we never could i mean you know just what we're doing now is a, is a is a miracle of technology from, you know, when I was a kid. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. We could be doing it just insane.
1: Oh, yeah. Even, so, even from when even I, was, we have... I was a kid and I'm, a, I think, a bit younger. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's un, unfathomable, I mean, really.
0: Yeah. So even though language has, has kind of splintered into all these different varieties and we have these astonishingly you know, different ways of looking at the world and thinking about the world, the technology is bringing us all back together again. And we're we're all really sort of now able to be back on the same page in ways that haven't through history. And that, that, in a sense, gives us hope that we're going to get past the kind of thing that's going on in Ukraine, for example, which is just essentially insane in the 21st century. (laughs) Is there,
1: um, just to back up a little bit into, you know, um, is there any evidence that, other animal species have anything similar to us in terms of language? I know that, for example, like chimpanzees and some birds do have some level of culture, things that, you know, ideas yeah. or concepts that they can pass on about finding food and, and you know, more basic activities like that. But there is there any uh, evidence that, that other species do language, maybe not, not on the same level that we do, but...
0: Yeah, the, the, not, not a great deal, but that's partly and probably mostly because we haven't really been looking for it, or maybe even more so, we haven't had the tools to analyze it. And uh, I think it's now, I mean, there's just recently been some uh, very interesting research published about chimpanzees and showing that even though we previously thought they could only make a very limited number of noises, they've shown that there's... Uh, up to about four hundred words—they're calling words. I mean, they, by which they mean putting noises together to allow them to increase their vocabulary, mm-hmm. just like numbers. Way that I argue in my in my book. So that that's a very interesting um, thing because it shows that what hu- humans have, have done in what I say digitizing noise and making language is actually something that other animals have started doing in different ways. So up until now everybody's thought that language one of the mysteries of language is why only humans? You know, how come humans have this power to think in recursive nested dependencies and all this kind of you know, Chomsky <laughs> and stuff. And no other animal can do it. That's crazy. Why? But actually now, if you reduce it back down to the basics, you can see that other animals are doing it. that, um, you know, it's still very primitive, but then these things, you know, Evolution happens over millions of years. It doesn't happen over your lifetime and my lifetime. So we've taken language and language once it catches fire, once you've got the idea of putting words together, then over a, a quite short space of time, even then probably a million years, you know, you're gonna start getting a, a hockey stick of, you know, very rapid development. Yeah. And I think that's why yeah. humans are so far ahead of the game. It's that Once, once it takes off, it really takes off. Whereas other animals haven't maybe got to that stage yet.
1: Hey, I just wanted to take a quick pause to thank another one of our sponsors, HostGator. HostGator is one of the world's top 10 largest web hosting companies with over 8 million hosted domains. They have around the clock support and all shared web hosting plans include a 45 day money back guarantee. I've personally used HostGator since 2008 for all of my hosting needs and couldn't be happier. Sign up today using the promo code ScienceCentric and you'll receive 25% off any new hosting plan. Now you mentioned, uh, in the book, this chimp, uh, I think a bonobo chimp named Kanzi, um, Conzi, yeah. could you, could you talk a little bit about that and okay this is what you're referring to cool. when you talk about chimps uh able to to yeah. make uh to learn something like 400 words and you yeah. you said something interesting about this this chimp that it sort of ceased to be a bonobo once it started uh, to yes. learn language so what, what do you mean by that exactly
0: what i meant by that was that um well the interesting thing about uh, they've tried for many years going back to the, the 30s to to teach language to to the great apes mainly chimps but also gorillas and and other animals and they've never really had much success with it they, they've uh, um they've you know managed to teach them some sign language and and but they never really kind of got it to the point where they felt that they'd been able to grasp it now the Kenzie's mother was one of the subjects of these experiments and they were trying to teach her words and she was having a lot of trouble. Uh, and then it, I think, I think when she was selected, that's what it was. When she was selected for the research, they didn't know she was pregnant, but they just sort of started into it and they realized that she was pregnant. So they had to carry on with it. And so she had the baby while she was doing, you know, part of the testing to teach her language. And after about three years, they just gave up with her because she just wasn't making any progress. And they sort of stopped. But then Kanzi, who'd been watching the whole thing, and they hadn't been teaching him, he'd just been hanging around with his mother, he suddenly started using the, the interface board that they had and showed that he had actually grasped things that his mother couldn't grasp. And so then they... Work with him, and and he was eventually able to understand quite complicated sentences. Like, would you pick that television up and take it outside the room, or something like that? That's one that sticks in my head. If you go onto YouTube, you can see it. You know that he's being told things that are, I mean, okay, it's not quantum physics, but it is, you know, complicated yeah. interactions yeah. with reality that I've just spoken to him and he understands it and and, it and, it.
1: and it's not just I mean, it's not just some repetitive task that they that he's done and 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 recognizes the sound of the words like the the researchers it, it are actually putting together it, sentences that he does not know, so he has to comprehend the 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 new construction of the sentence
0: yeah yeah that's absolutely right and that's he, amazing. And there's a sort of there are also videos of him he was he was taught how to make a fire and he could make a bonfire and Cook marshmallows on a stick and eat them sort of i mean again basic stuff but if you're able to say something and he's able to do you know to show that he's understood it then that's kind of one of us you know yeah that's what i mean by that yeah You, you know there's you have communicated in a way that is using the abstract tool of language to enter that that world of intelligence well to join minds essentially that's really what it's about yeah. i mean again go back to humans in the context of going into a foreign culture that a language you don't speak you're cut off you you just you know people just come up to you and say things and you can't understand what they mean Yeah. there's no way in yeah but when you learn the language then then you're in and then then you've joined you know the human aspect of that culture so By Kanzi mastering some of those aspects of language, he became one of us. I mean, in the the same way that somebody who can speak a little bit of your language is one of you in the way that somebody who can't speak any. So it's it's
1: really that you're, and you you said this a few times, but that it's like language sort of, you sort of enter into this abstract space together. We're having this conversation We're having this conversation across the Atlantic ocean. We're inhabiting this space, which of course is supported by, you know, technology and video and all of that. So we do yeah. have some nonverbal, uh, communication going on, but, but we're, we're inhabiting if we were on the phone, especially, and we didn't couldn't see each other, we'd be inhabiting this verbal sort of yeah. mental world. That's, that's yeah. sort of separated from our actual awareness. Totally. right I mean that's that's like, that's such I a cool way to think about it actually I, I think that's fascinating
0: in in the, in the book I, I talk about language being our, our or books for example being our first form of television you know because mm-hmm. if you have a good book a novel you're reading it you go totally into it and you, in your head you're seeing it all it's sort of it's just like television and you know when it's a book you go oh yeah well it's a book but actually we're doing it just all the time with language yeah. I'm 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 giving you ideas and you're bouncing back ideas to me and we're in that sort of conceptual world of sharing Yeah, an abstract space and, and being able to then sort of move within it by manipulating sound. It's the most incredible thing. Yeah. And as you said at the beginning, we're completely unaware of it.
1: Yeah. You because know, <laughs> once you're in it you don't realise. Well, I'm I'm a Star Trek uh, Star Trek fan, so I'm going to start calling oh. it calling it subspace because that sounds like a. It, it reminds me of that. It's like we're having this. There's this channel of communication that. Um, so that yeah. so this so yeah. this chimp. I, I mean, this is just fascinating. So this chimp learns our language, and now he, that chimp is sort of inhabiting that with his caretakers, yes. uh, or yes. you know these researchers.
0: Um, so I. My question about
1: and that, he, he also, like, by the yeah. way,
0: just by the way, very quickly, he also taught his uh, sister because he learned some sign wow. language and they, they, yeah, right. <laughs> and again, this is very primitive, but the, but the point, the bigger point is, which I also make in the book that it's not that other animals aren't intelligent. They are intelligent, but they don't have a way to share that intelligence. So they kind of cut off in their own, in their own worlds. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the issues about the evolution of the human is that we have these big brains that seem to be too big for us. I mean, in terms <laughs> of other animals, you know, where our brains are three times bigger than a chimpanzee in terms of you know brain body ratios. So conventionally the thinking in, in linguistic circles is that. And even in sapiens, you may remember at the beginning of sapiens, he, he repeats it is that So, you know, our brains just got bigger and then one day they were ready for language and we were, (laughs) so we were able to speak, you know, there was a conceptual revolution, whatever that means. And we were one day able to speak. So, okay. Uh, why did our brains get bigger? Um, I dunno, maybe, well, they just did, you know, (laughs) whereas my, I would like to turn that on its head and say, we actually, because we learnt even at a very primitive level, at the level of Kanzi the bonobo, how to start exchanging ideas, then that puts the premium on intelligence, because Hmm. the smartest members of the community can share their ideas, and the smarter you are, that doesn't just benefit you as an individual, it benefits the whole community. Right. So suddenly there's an evolutionary pressure to get smarter. So, you know, over again, hundreds of thousands, millions of years, It makes sense for a language-enabled community to develop bigger brains. And, And then that really puts you ahead of the game because, you know, the smart... And we've actually reached the limit for ourselves if you think about it. I mean, other animals can give birth quite easily, but it's quite tricky for humans to give birth, especially unaided, because our heads are so goddamn big. In fact, they're so big that we actually have to give birth prematurely in terms of animal terms. In order that our brains can grow outside the world because they're just so enormously huge. I mean, there must have been a really, really, really powerful reason for wanting to do that, for that being evolutionary acceptable. And the easiest answer to that is is language. Otherwise, how do you explain it? You
1: know? I, I'm I'm laughing because I just had the thought that we're 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 like we're we're sort of marsupials almost just for our brains, right? Like. <laughs> Like you know, marsupial mammals sorry. are born very premature, but for us, it's not the rest of our body; it's just for our heads.
0: Yeah, <laughs> just for our heads. Yeah, <laughs> because you know, again, as I the point I make in the book is that you know, it, we went from being really powerful. I mean, a chimpanzee, a male chimpanzee, is a pretty mean bastard. Oh yeah. If you were with a hungry chimp having a fighting over something, he he'd eat you. You know, there's oh, yeah. no way that an unarmed human could fight with a chimpanzee. They're incredibly so strong. How come? But we know also that we evolved from that. So why did we become physically weaker? Why is that environmentally, uh, sorry, yes, if, um, evolutionary is sort of a smart strategy, unless we had something to compensate for it. Yeah. Well, if we had language and we were able to work together in groups and plan strategies and hunt and do things using, a credible ability to communicate in the abstract world, then you wouldn't need to be individually strong because, you know, it would be better to put the effort into having a smarter brain. That's kind of what seems to have happened.
1: So so let me just play devil's advocate for for a second on that, because as I was thinking about that. But I mean, couldn't you say that wolves and other, say, orca whales that hunt in packs, similarly have that ability in terms of yeah i mean i guess well, you could yes. argue I mean, actually yeah. that that orcas do have language so that maybe maybe actually re- reinforces your point but I, i'm not sure about wolves um yeah se.
0: well i mean to a certain extent i mean you see group activity amongst other animals as well and and i'm not saying that you can't have group activity without language i'm just saying that if you have language your ability to leverage that group activity is just sort of exponentially different. Yeah. You know? I mean, you, you can hunt in a groups because you sort of get the idea of like circling around, a, a you know, fish so that you corral them into a corner. That's, that's kind of a, you can sort of teach that on a, almost a visual way. You know, it's sort of just watch me and do the same kind of thing, but you can't say well, let's, as I said earlier, you know, let's meet next Wednesday around the back of that cliff and we'll hang out and you just wait there and I'll drive the fish out and then you grab, you know, that kind of stuff definitely yeah. not happening. Yeah. And that's why, you know, you could say maybe they do to some extent have language, but you, you can tell from their behavior that they don't have a sophisticated capacity for communication because if they did, they would behave differently. Yeah. You know, they, they there is as you said, some kind of group behavior going, but it's very, very limited. Yeah.
1: Well, and, you know, I, I suppose if you looked at, I think whales are particularly interesting because they do have, yeah, you know, pretty, as far as animals go, pretty sophisticated communication. Um, they are the top predators of the ocean. I mean, they do have that advantage. Mm. So, you know, maybe given yeah. a couple more million, you know, years they would develop something that would be on par with human communication I'm just
0: Who knows maybe if they came back on land again because they originally came from the land that's the really kind of weird thing about whales about whales you oh know, yeah what was what was so bad about being on land that they had to go to the sea and develop you know that must have been really hot and, and, and dry and miserable on the land at that time
1: <laughs> um so um okay so 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 to to put it in sort of um I don't know how you would say it Dawkinsian terms dot da, Richard you know yeah. R- Richard Dawkins famous oh, geneticist oh, yeah okay he he hmm. he talked in his book The Selfish Gene about memes so it sounds like yeah. your kind of hypothesis if you will is that you know, memes sort of drove genes. So that, you know, having these language skills, no matter how rudimentary, sort of drove genetic evolution to 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 towards bigger brains so that we could get better at making memes and, you know, kind of, I guess and you could that almost extent, look at it yeah. as like a virtuous circle sort of scenario. Yes. Where, yeah. Absolutely a virtuous yeah. circle. Yeah. Whereas I mean, Whereas way, other, sorry, let me just finish the thought. So whereas, you know, other research or other ideas about it had have been sort of that that there's gene that the genes sort of just appeared. You know, some there was some kind of mutation that con- conferred this um, ability, ability to, speak. to speak. Yeah, and and the and the most classic one being. Uh the one that I've heard the most about is this Fox P2 gene, I think it's called in, and that we have yeah. or a or, or variant of that chimpanzees don't have. And we're like really closely related yeah. to chimps. I mean, we're basically hairless big brain chimps, yeah. but um, yeah. So a- am I characterizing that correctly? and
0: Yes, I mean, okay. in, in terms of specifically the, the selfish gene, the the final chapter of the original book talks about, memes. That's where he coined the word meme, yeah. which obviously has become a bit hijacked in the last <laughs> 30, 40 years. But nonetheless, the idea was that it was a, a unit of cultural transmission. That was how he defined it. Basically an idea. If you want to simplify it. You know. um, so, and, and I think the last sentence of the book says something like that memes are what liberate us from the tyranny of our genes. Because the whole notion of the selfish gene is that basically, you know, we're just vehicles for genes and genes genes are just sort of doing their thing and it's all about survival and we have to be the vehicle for that. Which is plausible, you know, explanation for most of nature. However, humans are different. Why are they different? Well, as he says right at the end of the book, it's about memes. So, in a sense, my book is just an expanded version of that last chapter. Yeah, yeah. And in yeah. fact, I sent him a, I sent him a copy of my book with that uh, explanation, and he was kind enough to read it and and, and said nice things about it. So um, I guess you know, in terms of Daw- Dawkinsian point of view, um, <laughs> I got the right picture. <laughs> That's great. But it's so because it is. It's it's like okay. So if memes were what liberated us from the tyranny of our genes, then what does that mean? You know, what is mm-hmm. that trajectory? I mean, going back to, uh, you know, Guns, Germs and Steel, you know, yeah. which is a fantastic book that looks at. I mean, what, what is he, his initial question is, why do the white men have all the cargo and us like brown folks have, have none? That's his kind of framing question. Right. So my framing question is, why do humans dominate the world and have all this stuff and they're able to do what we're doing now? and no other species can why is that yeah you know the answer is language and how does that play out what's the trajectory of all that that's really the book
1: yeah yeah well it's fat and it's fascinating um you know like i said it's it's i would say it's in the camp of those books because it's 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 because of its breadth because you're going into you know science and and religion and technology i mean all of those things are connected to language so um i think mm. to really get you know for people listening or watching to really get the breadth of it like you you should read it because it's um you know we can't do it justice in, in an hour um mm. and one thing i did on, yeah
0: on, go ahead go on well, i was just going to say about about sapiens that uh, because you know, that's another big, broad brush book that looks at sort of, you know, the historical evolution from a sort of history perspective. But he hardly mentions language at all. He does mm-hmm. talk about, you know, the big concepts that unite us, but he hardly mentions it. Uh, and as I said earlier, he talks about, you know, the conceptual revolution that happens. Somehow something happened <laughs> and we could do grammar. Great. Okay. I mean, that's like page one, no further discussion. And the thing that really uh, sort of struck me is that when he comes to talking, because he talks about the agricultural revolution as the second one. Fair enough. Nobody disagrees with that. And then the scientific revolution. And his explanation for the scientific revolution is that essentially one day we, we woke up and realized that we were ignorant. Yeah, you know? And it's like, well, yes, I'm sure that could be so, but it actually happened to coincide with printing. You know, the scientific revolution and printing in the West, in Europe, happened at the same time. So basically, you're going from a situation where there were 30,000 books in the whole of Europe. And that doesn't mean 30,000 different books. That means 30,000 just <laughs> physical books right. in 1450. And by 1500, you've got 10 million books. So suddenly, the dissemination of information, you know, even the very simple but the important early Greek understanding of the universe, suddenly spread out for a vast number of people. And by coincidence, you get a scientific revolution. <laughs> I think it was probably a lot to do with printing, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's... Which is an extensive language. I think that's one thing that... Um, a, a bit of a tangent, but I, I do think that we tend to, for some reason, discount technology in the, in the growth or change in culture. So the one I always come back... That I always think about and, and people it seems like people just discounted or forget it is is the birth control pill um was huge mm. was huge, huge in terms of changing you know yeah. interactions between men and women and possibilities for women and you, concerns and yeah. everything and changed our culture so dramatically and that happened you know maybe what 50 years ago 50, 50 60 years ago. ago 60
0: years ago yeah
1: yeah and it's yeah. like that was a fundamental change in in our culture and and we've like forgotten that that happened and that it was you know absolutely and for some reason yeah. we discount those things and we think that the culture just would have evolved anyways but that's just not how it works um they they, they co-evolve and, and the together mother,
0: yeah and the mother load of that technology is language <laughs> right you know, right because, because it is a technology but as you said right at the beginning it's like a fish in water we just don't even see it you know yeah. we just, sucked into it and it's it's not, it's invisible <laughs> unless you happen to run into another language and then suddenly it's like, Oh, what's going on? Oh, there's something wrong with them. You know, <laughs> that's kind of the, the way it goes.
1: <laughs> that's not a trolley. That's a grocery cart. What's wrong with you?
0: <laughs> yeah. A trolley. Exactly. Exactly.
1: <laughs> Sorry for the interruption. I swear, I swear, this is the last one. I just wanted to tell you about the reading room that we have set up over at sciencecentric.com. It's a page dedicated to cool science and nature books, many of them written by authors who have appeared on this show. Any book you purchase through the links on the page directly supports the podcast and the other amazing projects we have in the works. The nice thing is there's no additional cost to you. So if you'd like to see a nice collection of science books uh, that you can purchase, head over to sciencecentric.com and check out our reading room. So, yeah, you have a whole section of the book talking about sex, drugs, and rock and roll um, yeah. as as a bit of an antidote to one of the traps of language uh, that we discussed a little bit. But maybe you could talk about that. and And I think okay. you could probably throw you know, Zen meditation in there as well. Um, but, but what, why, why are sex drugs and rock and roll in your book aside from, you know, uh, it sounds good. Some interests of yours. No, I'm just kidding. But, Oh no, please.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, but well, I just thought to myself, I mean, I, my wife is Japanese and, uh, you know, nowadays it's maybe not so uncommon for people to marry outside of their, how should I put this, racial type or, or, or whatever, you know, it's it's especially in America, obviously it's, it's there's much more of a mixed community in New York, you know, especially so, um, but when I was, you know, in my 20s and especially in the context of Japan, it was a huge, huge thing for my family to, to deal with the idea that. I was going to get married to a Japanese woman. It's like, what's what's wrong? What's wrong with you? So, um, and, uh, you know, as I, as I say in the book, if you, if you fall in love across cultural religious or identity boundaries, for you yourself, you, the feeling is, you know, you're, you know, you're dealing with a fellow human here and there's, there's, the rest of it is just artificial hmm. you know, it, it becomes very clear to you and so if i'm identifying which i do in the first part of the book traps that we fall into you know the cultural the religious the identity traps then how is it that we're able to break out of them because we do and the most the easiest one i could think of was well i call it sex but it's you know it's 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 a it's the the relationship you, that you have a sexual relationship and then, you know, choosing a partner who is from a different culture and a different language and a different religion. And that makes complete sense when you're in that
1: mm-hmm. you know?
0: and seen from the outside, people are going to go, what are you doing? Maybe. But, um, it's from an internal point of view that that's the escape route from the trap. And so drugs, similarly, um, anybody watching this who's had any experience with them will know that they are a way of breaking down barriers I mean alcohol let's just stick with alcohol yeah it's a sort of it's a way of liberating yourself maybe not always to uh, good effect <laughs> but the rules you know culture, religion identity all these things they're kind of rules that you learn as you grow up you may yeah. not realize that they're rules but they're things that you've signed off on. And then, whatever it is going on in the brain, uh, recreational drugs of all varieties have the capacity to make you question it or maybe ignore them. Yeah. So there's a sort of potential there also for realizing the artificiality of the, of the traps that you're you're stuck in. Yeah. So I, I thought that was another interesting way, especially you know now and now you know now we're beginning once again to start looking at the therapeutic effects of psychedelic drugs. Uh, I really very much hope that this will continue because, you know, it's some of, you know, some of these things are intractable unless you have a way of pulling yourself out of yourself. Yeah. Now, of course, meditation, we were talking about earlier is one of the classic ways of doing right. That. I mean, every, every religious tradition has a tradition of, um, you know, quiet reflection. Whether they call it meditation or whatever they do. You know, I mean, like in Christian traditions, you go on retreats and you don't talk. Yeah. Just cut off words. And drugs, I think Aldous Huxley once described LSD as being a hammer blow to enlightenment. He said, you know, <laughs> it's like a, you, you, you know, it's, it's not perhaps the, the, uh, the, the safest way of getting there, but it is a way of just busting open all the preconceptions that you have that sort of trap you right. in those right. worlds that we're talking about. So that's drugs. Yeah. Rock and roll, I'm using that term very loosely to mean anything you get excited by, you know. So sport very much falls into that category. I mean, right. look at what sport does in terms of uniting the world around something that personally I'm not that interested in, but I you know, it's sort of the idea of kicking a inflated pig's bladder around a pitch for <laughs> 90 minutes seems to excite everybody and everybody can understand that and they it, it brings you past those kind of cultural barriers yeah. that otherwise separate us. so that's why i put those three things together in, in the center of the book for chapter five as 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 you said antidotes it's like how do we escape from, from stuff
1: and um yeah, I mean, I. It's a, sports is kind of interesting because I was also going to mention that a lot of religious traditions have not only kind of quiet reflection or meditation, but they also have like ecstatic sort of participation mm-hmm. uh, that involves music or deprivation of yeah. the senses and, and kind of tries yeah. to induce almost a hallucinogenic yeah. state in people that, yeah. um, and sports I think could, maybe be that kind of on par like, with that for some people, you know, where you're just so focused well, and, and put, it, put it in the bucket with beer, I think.
0: Uh, <laughs> but, yes. Also, cons- also consumed
1: why, in, 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 tandem, but uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, why? so let's just stick with religions though. I mean, it's sort of, why do they all have and why have they independently all evolved, evolved these, these practices? It's because people have realised that they're they're trapped, and and they you know they want to to reach some kind of greater understanding of of what they are. I mean, call it God, whatever you want to say. They want to be connected more deeply to the experience of reality, and the only way they can do that is to just shut down all the noise, yeah, you know, the monkey brain, the chatter which is both visible in terms of language and invisible in terms of cultural assumptions and norms and, and everything. And mysticism yeah. in every religion takes you outside the, you know, the headline stories about, you know, in the Bible or the Quran or anything else. And it, it, it sort of tries to, to reach God directly.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that it's interesting how religions have that sort of dualism. Because, you know, as you mm. as you talk about it at length uh, in your book is, you know, religion can become very dogmatic and it's based in doctrine and words and, you know, uh, descriptions of things. But then it also has this kind of chaotic, ecstatic, um, you know, mystical component to it. And those seem to be yeah. so like at odds with each other in a way, you know, and. One of you well, know you bring up that like, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, um, are are you know, and and those those of the authorities are always trying to kind of clamp down on those because it it does take people out of the that everyday experience and that cultural conformity.
0: It makes you ask questions. Makes yeah. you ask questions, basically.
1: Yeah. Um, but it seems like there's this duality um in in that and and,
0: maybe it's because the the religion is such a you know one it's contained the seeds of its it contains the seeds of its own destruction if you like i mean it's because it's such a an all you know encompassing doctrine about how to live follow the you know read the bible learn it by heart do what it says you know leviticus you know what is it? 10 pages of who you should or shouldn't be naked with and why, you know, and you just got to learn that and do it. And then some people realize that that's kind of, there's something else that they want to get in touch with. Yeah. Now. Because it is an artificial constraint. I mean, it's, there's nothing about religion that, that comes with, you're not born religious. You have right. to learn to be religious, right. You know? And so right. it's, it's a sort of, a I, a natural escape valve. I think. I think of it. As, yeah. Mysticism. So, sort of, you know Or how? Or, how uh, if, if you know if it's if religion is a metaphor, you know, it's, it's sort of telling a set of stories and saying it's trying to say something. Well, that's what mysticism essentially is saying: is that this is just a, a story, and, and the reality is actually behind that. It's, it's a much larger thing, but most people don't have the time or the interest to uh, to do that. Devote themselves to that. Or maybe
1: also they can, you know, it's that if those experiences that are, you know, just kind of purely awareness experiences without thought are sort of contained within a religion, then that somehow makes them a bit safer and like, well, that's part of this religious practice. And therefore, you know, you're still following the yeah. the doctrine and you know, but it's, but we're framing it within that instead of saying, yeah, well, you should just question everything that you know about everything because you had this crazy LSD trip or something. And we,
0: you know, (laughs) that, that's, that, that makes sense. I mean, I think it is, it is a scary thing to, to question everything. And, and, you know, that's what happens when people have a psychotic breakdown. So, you know, these are, these are not things that are easily messed with, but nonetheless, you know, the, for me, and then going back originally to why did I write the book, it was, it was sort of looking at how come we are just really clashing over stuff that is common to us all. We've just kind of decided our own little world is right. And just, can we back off a little bit and see that None of us are actually right. We're all entitled to do what we like and enjoy ourselves. That's absolutely fine. But don't make it, particularly don't make it a religious thing that says, my God is right and yours is wrong and I'm (laughs) going to fight you. I mean, that's just crazy. That's absolutely mad.
1: I I don't know if you're familiar with the philosopher. um, He's kind of a new agey philosopher named Ken Wilber. But he had this great expression, which is, um, that kind of underpinned his philosophy. He was doing another one of these kind of things where he was trying to, trying to reconcile religion and science. But he said, not, everybody can't be wrong all of the time. And it's like that idea that, that, you know what, most people are probably wrong about like most of what they think that Israel, they know, but they can't be wrong all of the time. So he, his idea was, well, we can take um, a little bit from every culture that they seem to be doing right and kind of reconcile yeah. it. And I think that's a really cool yeah. idea. Um,
0: yeah. And I, I kind of touched on that at the end of my chapter on religion, like so you know, it's very easy to laugh at religions. If you're a sophisticated hit, you know, urban kind of a person, you go, how could anybody be so stupid? But, you know, 80% of the world subscribes to some form, form of religion. Yeah. And there must be something within that, that is delivering the goods for them. You yeah. Know, it's sort of, you know, and, and, you know, maybe we haven't found the right way of, of characterizing it yet, but, but there, you know, the sense of belonging to a greater thing than just yourself, I think is something that, that is innate to us and maybe is a property of consciousness, you know, in here's throughout the universe, if one wants to be grand about it, but, um, you know, these are one, you, you shouldn't be, uh, everybody should be allowed to, find their own way. I think that's probably the thing. But on the other hand, you know, there are some things that are just plain stupid. Uh, maybe we ought to discuss those as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's my take on a lot of traditional practices is that we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's something there's probably something good there if people were doing this for a long time. If we can sort of separate the wheat from the chaff, then there's something there, but mm-hmm. it's probably not going to be the it's same probably. thing that. Is the exact doctrine that, you know, is written down. So, um, yeah. Anyways, uh, that's probably probably a good place to stop. Um, I think we could talk okay. about this. I think we could talk about this We're like a couple either. more hours because it's fascinating and, and it's <laughs> encompasses so many different things. Um, but anyways, this has really been a pleasure to talk to you and, and I really enjoyed reading your book. Um, where can people find, uh, find you online, uh, interact with you, ask you questions Any you know, where are you in in the, in the, uh,
0: internet space? Okay. Well, I have a, I have a Twitter account, which is called memes over jeans. I can riddle you that. That's, that's, that's the Dawkins thing. That if you just put Simon Prentice in, it'll, it'll pop up. But memes, at memes over jeans is my Twitter handle. Um, I have a website, simonprentice.net. And Prentice, by the way, is spelled P-R-E-N-T-I-S. Just one S. No E's. Um, you'll find it anywhere. And, and if you're interested in my book, which I have a handy copy of here. All right. Um That's... Uh, you can get that on Amazon, the usual, uh, and in bookshops, if you want.
1: No Thanks a lot, Simon. It's been great speaking with you, and uh, I look forward to see what, see what you're up to
0: next. Thank you very much. It was enjoyable talking to you.
1: Well, that's it for this show. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Email us at feedback at Also, don't forget to rate this show and leave a review wherever you happen to download your podcasts. You can directly support future episodes by joining our Patreon page for as little as a dollar per month. We have a couple of nice benefits available, including early access to new episodes and a monthly live Q&A with yours truly. Head over to sciencecentric.com support for more info. ScienceCentric is a FlowSpark media production. Our audio engineer for this episode was Dayan Jedjik. Guest booking was handled by Melissa David. Thanks for listening, and until next time,
0: I'm Eric Olson.